0: Hello, mind readers, myth seekers, and fabulous of all sorts. I'm Grant Faulkner. I'm here with my co hosting partner, Brooke Warner. And, Brooke, I have to confess, last year was a long, tough year for me, and I'm still feeling a bit burned out. I think we tend to put on an energetic, chipper face when we record this podcast, which is generally good and generally true for me, but I feel like it's worth acknowledging that I've never had such a hard time writing in the mornings as I have had the last few months. I didn't come close to reaching 50,000 words in NaNoWriMo, and I'm not feeling the pull or the oomph of any of my new projects. And that that phrase, running on fumes, feels very accurate of late. You know, I definitely didn't feel much juice around making New Year's resolutions this year. I keep telling people the pandemic won, and I, I don't know if it's the pandemic, but I have sensed this feeling from a lot of people of late, so I wonder if you're feeling it as well.
1: Yeah, I mean gosh, it is it's a vibe, you know, it's global, let's just be honest. Um and it's also been coming on 2 years. I think we're pretty tired and wishing to come around the bend or see that light at the end of the tunnel and every time you think you do, another variant hits. So it's it's very real burnout and you know, after our episode with Charlie Jane Anders last year, I had a moment in that show where I felt like she was just speaking right to me, which was to give me permission to let go of this project that I had tried to embrace and that I was also not writing, <laughs> you know, but it was also worse than that because I was also beating myself up emotionally for not doing the writing. So I was shooting myself, which is never a great creative place to be in when you're trying to do a book. But, you know, in the past, I'd just always been able to push through and this time was different and I didn't just know it, you know, I felt felt it it was deeper, like in my bones, um this feeling that I was just trying to tackle too much, but also importantly that I wasn't enjoying it and so i I have just kind of echoing what you're saying, I mean interestingly, I just am starting to kind of come into a new place of feeling creative energy, but it's not so much around my writing as much as it is around my business. But I also think like if you're feeling completely uninspired in your writing space, I, like I think there's an, an a relationship with the book, right? And that relationship with the book and your own inspiration and what you put into it then also translates to the reader. And I felt to myself, like, how can I be inspiring to my reader if I just have zero energy for this book? So I didn't kill it, but I'm not working on it. The project's on the back burner for the time being, but, um, you know, I'm creatively, I'm not putting into a book at this actual moment.
0: Hmm. You said it perfectly. I love the verb shooting. Um, I love uh, how you said that you're feeling it deep in your bones. Um, and that, that phrase antagonistic dynamic of resistance within, because that's exactly what I feel. I think you're right. It's, it's good to just recognize this and give yourself permission to take a break and regroup later. I feel like people are entering a new phase of that. I mean, how many phases of this pandemic have there been? <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, this is like phase 48. Yeah. And I think for many, it's because, you know, that this uh, strange fatigue burnout is because we're staring at screens all day. I used to get a break from my screen because I, would you know, meet with people. I'd have lunch with them. I'd go to meetings I'd get up from my desk and move around. I'd go to the gym and, and now I'm pretty much entirely static and mostly glued to my screen all day. And my home has been a very awkward office for you know nearly two years now. Um, so my daily life has a claustrophobic feel to it essentially. And, and one thing about feeling burned out is that it's easy to feel like you've lost creative energy for good. You know, like I sometimes I'm just like, I could curl up around Netflix and some tubs of ice cream for the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't a bad way to live, but it's important to remember that's not the case. And, and one reason I know this is that when I was talking with Michelle Reese Kyle about being on this podcast today, she told me, Uh, i was really energized because she told me she likes revising her novel with the use of mythic structures that she's adapted from a book called the virgin's promise which is kind of a counter narrative to joseph campbell's Hero with a thousand faces and she's going to talk through a couple exercises with us later and what i liked about this with michelle was how it made me think how revision can be refreshing And how it can lift one out of the creative doldrums simply because you're not you're not creating something new. You don't have that onus on you. You're creating something in reaction to what you've already written. You know, you're riffing on a theme, essentially, and having a conversation with your work. And the other thing I I found refreshing in talking with Michelle was the idea of, of just trying a new approach. I loved her take on mythic structures and I love her unconventional approaches. So my resolution is to try some new approaches this year to my old way of doing things. And I know this is going to be an unpopular notion with some who hate revision. So I'm curious if you agree, Brooke, about looking to revision as a refreshing creative exercise and a way to start off the new year to create momentum.
1: Yeah, I really do like that, you know. And in fact, when I do start writing again, because it will happen, it's, it's actually going to be a form of revision that I'm tending to first, because I have some transcribed words from a class that I taught with Linda Joy Myers on structure, memoir structure, and we're going to be using those as uh, the backbone for a book that we're working on about structure. And so that's a form of revision too, right? Taking words that you have, it's actually stuff that we have from classes that we've taught, and then we're going to finesse that into a book. So, you know, on revision, absolutely. And in fact, I'm just longing to find an approach that is refreshing, re-energizing, renewing, you know, all the re's, please. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, the question is always how to do that. Like, I know that I need an accountability partner hands down super important for me if I am stuck and I need support to get through it so one of the first things I will do when I'm ready uh, to tackle this is definitely going to be to hire a coach or an editor who can nudge me from the sidelines to stick to what I want to do but beyond that grant I welcome ideas for cultivating these rewords you know revitalize reemerge reset like I said I'll take one of each please
0: yeah, you said it. Here's to the rewords, the r e words, however you want to say it. You know, I'm just thinking maybe we should look into getting the URL for that book and start a whole <laughs> new organization or movement around it. The rewords. Um, anyway, I often get carried away by thinking of new projects like this, and sometimes they can add to my burnout. But you know, I'm gonna gotta say another thing that's excited me of late is the experience of a different creative platform. This is interesting and it's I got to say it's somewhat dangerous uh, part of modern our modern life as writers that you know writers of yore never had to deal with you know there wasn't a new website popping up with new communications capabilities for I don't know Tolstoy so I know this falls under the list of you don't need to do this grant this is the kind of thing that leads you to the burnout you're talking about but <laughs> I started a Substack email newsletter crazily enough one day And it's kind of fun. It's it's a one-part blog post, one-part newsletter. So I've been playing around with different formats and content sections. And right now, each newsletter includes a, a very short essay on a creative topic. And then I've been taking photos for years. So I've been using those as a weekly photo prompt. And I include a weekly quote from my lifetime archive of writing quotes. And I sometimes write a haiku or include something just for whimsy's sake in a section called Whimsicality. And my goal is to do this weekly this year and see how it feels. And I I think the thing I find creatively replenishing about our internet age is the pleasure I take in being able to publish something whenever I want to. Uh, So, once again, Brooke, am I crazy for starting something new (laughs) when I can't keep up with the things I have going on? And are you at all tempted to, I don't know, self sabotage like this with uh, new platforms on the internet?
1: I mean, I admire you with the Substack thing. You know, I've been watching that and just admire your gumption. I'm a late adopter of all things in general. Like I have confessed to that before, but where new platforms are concerned, I'm always the person who has to be dragged by the arm, you know, usually by a friend or colleague. So, uh, you know, like my thing this year is about posting on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to 2022. You know, like Instagram has been around since 2010. So it's literally as old as my son. But like I got onto Facebook, I think like many years after it started. I don't know. I, it's part of my personality. You know, I, I think it's also that I have a desire to protect my time. So, you know, I don't think it's misguided to protect yourself against things. And I also think it's quite important to embrace new things with enthusiasm. I don't love my resistance and my resentment of platforms. You know, I, I wish that I was like out on the forefront and totally loving it. But I, I don't imagine I'm alone in this kind of ambivalence.
0: Ah, those innocent days of the early 2000s when we barely knew what Facebook <laughs> really was, and now I've connected in some way with everyone I've ever shaken hands with in my life. I think, but good for you to be on to try out Instagram. I, I, I forget <laughs> when I actually truly got on and started using it, maybe two, three years ago. But um, I really love it. It's uh, actually the platform I prefer most, just because I like taking weird photos and following other photographers. For one. But all this uh, talk about the internet reminds me to mention that my breaks from the internet are super replenishing. And I loved my holiday break because I, I, I just read and doodled thoughts in my journal. And this is my ritual at the end of each year because the pattern in my life that is most disturbing to me is how I'm reading less and less each year. And one of the books I read was Summer in the City of Roses written by today's guest, Michelle Ruiz Kyle. And it was wonderful. And Brooke, do you I'm curious, do you struggle with the same ambivalence with your reading cue?
1: Yeah, not the same kind of ambivalence that I have with sort of that outward orientedness. You know, when it comes to reading, I am all good. Uh, the only thing I suffer with uh, where it comes to my reading habits is honestly jealousy towards people who have more time than I do to read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have a little bit of FOMO when I get online and I see books that people have finished or are raving about. And I just know based on my existing cue that I'm never going to get to that particular book. So yeah. that's a, you know, that's a different kind of thing. It's honestly like amb- embarrassment of riches but someday when i'm old and retired i'm just gonna sit in a sitting room that has lots of sunlight and i'm like never gonna leave and i'm just gonna read and read and read
0: that's my dream too
1: (laughs) perfect (laughs) stress-free you know it's it's a beautiful future we have carved out for ourselves
0: yeah yeah i want that for you And I can visualize it, too. And I invite you to visualize your own stress-free book utopia, whether that exists online or in the real world. And we'll be back after this short break with today's guest, Michelle Ruiz-Kyle. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm super excited to introduce today's guest, Michelle Ruiz-Kyle, who is a writer, tarot reader, coyote whisperer. Mythpunk witch, with an eye for the enchanted and a way with animals, her critically acclaimed debut novel, All of Us with Wings, was called A Fantastical Ode to the Golden City's Post-Punk Era by Entertainment Weekly. And her second novel, Summer in the City of Roses, just came out last July. Michelle is a San Francisco Bay Area native, and she's lived in Portland, Oregon for many years. She curates the fairy tale reading series, All Kinds of Fur, and lives with her family in a cottage where the forest meets the city. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Can't wait to hear about all of that. (laughs) And Michelle, I remember we met at a Lit Camp novel writing webcast, and I remember I was super excited to learn you'd done NaNoWriMo. And you've since gone on to be a camp counselor for NaNoWriMo, and you're on our writers' board as well. And I, but but beyond that, I don't know a whole lot about your journey as a writer. And since your first novel, All of Us with Wings, takes place in 1990 San Francisco, which was my first era in San Francisco, and it's a an ode to post-punk San Francisco, I feel like our creative paths might have crossed somewhere there. Can you tell me more about your journey as a writer?
2: Um, Sure. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to actually figure out I was a writer. Um, I started out doing theater and when I lived in San Francisco in the late eighties and, um, very early nineties, I was studying acting. So I sort of came to my creative life, um, through my acting training and then, you know, life kind of moved on and I found myself in Portland, um, with two daughters and, um, in the early two thousands, and um I was very involved at their school, which was um a free school, like a free democratic school. So basically kids could do like whatever they wanted. And some of the teenagers at the school approached me saying they wanted to do this thing called nano And I was like, Nano what? <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and that was uh I'd sort of, you know, thought back and I, you know, I had been a playwright and I had a little theater space. So I had done writing um, in that way and in college I had taken a couple of short fiction classes I mean honestly for the financial aid because you know how like you have to have a certain amount of credits for your financial aid Mm -hmm. and you either have to take like a PE class or like a whole four credit class so there was this like in between option offered by the creative writing class and I thought okay that is what I'll do and I had a great experience in the class and I think maybe I would have even started to know that I was a writer then but um life brought me the surprise of my daughter and, um, life kind of moved past that moment. And it wasn't until later, um, that I sort of picked it up. So this was, I guess, 2008 when the NaNoWriMo thing happened. And Hmm. I just said, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? I'll do it if you do it, you know? And I agreed to have late night, you know, or all night, honestly, pizza parties at my house and just, you know, write a book and, um, I brought in a few book ideas. I said I'd write whatever they voted on. I was taking it like not at all seriously.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, the book that they voted on, the sort of story idea they voted on became all of this with Wings, my first novel.
0: That is such a great story.
1: I love that story, too. Yeah. Um, so the thing is that writers sometimes change because of what they write. And you've said that All of Us with Wings taught you to honor the rites of passage you made for yourself and to love and accept the girl that you were at 17. So could you talk a little bit more about that and how your novel influenced you as a person in a in such a way?
2: Yeah, I think it was kind of a perfect... Um... A perfect confluence because being at the free school, seeing how many paths there could be if you did take a path that was non-traditional and seeing that my own family had begun to take a non-traditional path, I began to reflect on, you know, my own path, which was very non-traditional. I was a high school dropout. I moved to San Francisco, um, you know, had various adventures, some of which were kind of transcendent others that were very dangerous. And I'm lucky to have survived. And I always sort of had wanted this other thing. I'd wanted to like, go to UC Berkeley, and then go to Yale drama and be like Meryl Streep. I mean, that was like the plan. And I think there was this part of me that had never forgiven myself for not, you know, um, doing that plan for not being able to do it. Um, You know, things got difficult in my family, there was past trauma I was dealing with. And I didn't understand that that was shaping my life at the time but when i looked back when i wrote the book i began to see that you know the choices that i made were absolutely informed by the things i had been through but that those things led me to where i was and looking back i wouldn't really change any of it and then i really realized once i had completed the book that i would never have been able to write that book had i lived that other life you know maybe i would have written a different book but not that book and um And I was really glad I'd written it. So it kind of gave me this moment of not even just forgiveness, but like actual gratitude for my past self that, you know, I survived and I learned and I grew and I turned into the person with that story to tell.
0: Hmm. That's such an interesting story. I love how it's not just forgiveness, but gratitude um, for your story. And your second novel, Summer in the City of Roses, takes place in Portland, which is another city that's very much in my heart. And you said something very interesting about uh, the way you write about setting, that setting and period are both very important to you and that each of your novels takes place in a city that is mostly lost at a time right before huge changes take place. And I think that's such an interesting and dramatic way to explore setting to make it really alive. So I was wondering if you could speak to how the drama of a setting influences the plot of your story.
2: Mm, Kind of completely. I mean, I think that... um... I'm surprised by this in a certain way, but it seems to be very true. And I'm working on a third project now that's also really place-based and really understanding how, how that is everything to my process. And I think that place and time, you know, I think it kind of comes almost from being a tarot reader in a funny way, because when I look at divination, I see it as this moment in time where you are stopping sort of the flow of time and observing it, right? And I think that, when you think about writing at a, in a specific place at a specific time, there's this sort of like, um, if you could press the stop button and just take a moment and take it all in. You can see that every little bit of it influences sort of everything that you do, every, every way that you react. You know, if you're, if you're in a, in a moment where you are lost, for instance, in this moment, you pull out your phone and if your phone is dead or you don't have your phone, you seek a different path than you would say in, you know, 1990. You know, you would maybe go and ask someone for directions and it would be a completely different story. Mm-hmm. So I think that just that's like a really like a simple version of what that would be. But um, I think kind of in every way, place and time, you know, they're kind of everything. They're, they're the they're the air that we read, the environment that we're moving in.
1: Your stories are grounded in reality. in that summer um, in the city of Roses, it's set in uh, Riot Girl, the Riot Girl scene in the 1990s in Portland. but they also draw from myth. Uh, the novel is also inspired by the Greek myth of Iphigenia and the grim fairy tale brother and sister. So could you tell us about how you draw from myth to construct a story about the real world and why you turn to myth in the first place?
2: Sure. Um, I think that, well, for one thing, um, you know, myth and, um, fairy tale are a big part of just my general interest as a person. And, um, that also comes out of my interest in divination. I'm really interested in archetypes and in archetypal storytelling also in Jungian psychology. And I think all of that kind of comes together, um, just to be the way that that is sort of just the way that my brain works. But, um, in terms of story, with my first book, for instance, when I had finished the NaNoWriMo and I had this thing and I had no idea what to do with this 50,000 words of something, <laughs> um, you know, I started to work on it and try to shape it and got really super lost. And so I thought to myself, what story is this? Cause I don't believe it. I'm one of those believers that there's no, you know, news story, but there's, you know, there are endless ways to tell the stories that there are to tell. And I thought, what, what does this remind me of? What story is this? And I thought about, um, a particular fairy tale that it reminded me of. And then I also thought about, um, I, I looked at Aztec myth and tried to find sort of some parallels there for my character, Sochi. And I did find some really helpful roadmaps within those tales. I thought, Oh, we need to hit this mark. Now this is when she's wandering in the forest. You know, this is when she meets the old couple, you know, this is, so it it started to help me find my way, um, through that kind of thicket of, you know. A draft. And then with my second book, I I, I had been thinking about these two stories a lot. My reading series, um, we had done a version with the story, brother and sister, which is kind of a Hansel and Gretel story. And then, um, I had been thinking about my own life too, and about my own family and wanting to explore neurodivergence and how that affects a really close family. And, you know, to sort of look at, um, at, at our changes and growth, um, in, in, in that time in Portland. So that was all kind of swirling around. But um, I think that, you know, so my my guiding light at the beginning of Summer in the City of Roses were these two stories. I was also thinking a lot about the story of Iphigenia for a long time. I kind of started with myth with the second book, but with the first book, I really um, found that mythic overlay as a way to to edit, and it completely saved me.
0: I want to talk about the mythic overlay as you put it and I love how you called your NaNoWriMo novel your first one 50,000 words of something. <laughs> and and I I love it because um I think a lot of writers actually are, are very challenged by by thinking about revising their NaNoWriMo novel, just because it does end up being messier than, than most first drafts uh, that aren't written during NaNoWriMo. And when we initially talked about this podcast, you mentioned that you have some tools for structure using mythic patterns that might be fun to talk about. And I know you're also a fan of the book, The Virgin's Promise, which offers an alternative story structure to the hero's journey. So I was just wondering if you can dig a little deeper and tell us how you use these tools in revision
2: definitely um you know I was a big hero's journey person I've used it in a lot of different ways in theater of course and I've also used it kind of in a social work context with um you know some therapy groups that I helped to um run so I had an idea that if you can fit your story into this mythic container it makes it suddenly so much more clear and manageable and so I thought you know when I first had all of this with wings sitting there you know that's what gave me the idea of like maybe that would help you know this because it, it is something, but it is a story. I know that's at least what it is. So I can kind of start there. Um, So the first tool I did use was I tried to hero's journey and it didn't work. Hmm. And at that time, um, I was looking at there's a few other books. There's like the heroine's journey. I was looking at an alternative. And then when I finally found the virgin's promise, I was. I had it was several drafts later, but that helped me immensely because it's really talking about a story where the 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 story engine is um is turning to create an internal change. It's mm. not really going to like the kingdom will be different. The the you know there will be the world will be different at the end of the story than it was at the beginning. But the reason is because of an internal change. No dragons have been slain. You know it's just it's except for those that are internal. And so I really wanted to find something. That was also very domestically based. And the, the Virgin's Promise looks a lot at fairy tale structure, which tends to happen in a domestic sphere. There might be a journey, but it's to a cottage, to a castle, you know, so there's something happening within the four walls of a home. And um, that was incredibly helpful to me. So I think that one thing you can do is once you've got this messy draft, you can try to, you can just lay out that mythic structure the beats, the beat points, the, the story beats of like the Virgin's promise, for instance, or the hero's journey and see how does my story fit? Sometimes you'll be like, Oh, you know, everything happens in the beginning too quickly. There's the call to adventure and then the refusal of the call. Maybe I need a little bit more refusal to create some tension. You know, you can kind of find those places where you're maybe missing a part of your story in that way. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing can be like, you know, just when you're lost sort of, like what needs to actually happen? like what needs to happen internally for this character? You might be like, what does this remind me of? And that's sort of what ha- helped with me with, with, um, all of us with wings so much. Um, there is a story called um, the maiden without hands where basically, um, a young girl is sort of inadvertently, but very carelessly, um, given to the devil by her parents, um, who make a deal that they should not have made. And in exchange for her freedom, she has to give up her hands. So it's really talking about how I, in my, in my view, how abuse affects us and how it can um, make it difficult to navigate. And so when I found that story as an overlay, I, I understood how it would work to navigate with that kind of a wound. And and so it helped me find the next plot point and the next and the next.
0: That's so interesting. And I have used the hero's journey as an overlay and I guess sometimes it works. You know, I, I think I that think it doesn't quite work for me. I think I'm much more in the Virgin's Promise camp as you describe it. I haven't read that book though. So I'm, I'm curious about one, what is the Virgin's Promise exactly? Yeah, and I guess we can start there.
2: Oh yeah, sure. It's, um, it's an alternate to the hero's journey. So, um, Kim Hudson, who wrote it, studied with Chris Vogel, who wrote the writer's journey, which is, you know, kind of a screenwriter writer, um, manual for using the hero's journey material in story writing. And, um, she was, you know, loved it, but thought it doesn't always work. Like it doesn't always quite fit. So she proposes an alternative version that has its story beats. It starts, I think, with the dependent world. So it starts with the character, um, you know, kind of in the world of their family or confined within their role. And then it kind of moves out into a secret world where the main character is um, experimenting with who they're going to become and with what their journey is going to be. And then, you know, the character is caught shining. So her secret world begins to get, get seen. And then she grows too big for her world. And, you know, something sort of happens to explode her secret world. And then, you know, then you're kind of off to the races. So all of the plot points are very similar to the hero's journey plot points, but just different enough. And you'll find those are very easy to map to fairy tales and also to certain movies. Like my favorite example of hers is the movie Legally Blonde. That is an excellent Virgin's Promise. If you just want to like kind of go through, you you can see it just laid out beautifully. So, but there's lots of others too.
1: That's fascinating. I think we're gonna have to take a deeper look at that one. It's sort of an alternative to the Cinderella, just explosion of stories in Hollywood and elsewhere. Um, In closing, Michelle, we are wondering if your next novel will take place in another city at another dramatic time. And are you working on another novel?
2: I am working on another novel. And it's funny because I thought I was working on one novel. And then just a few days ago, I realized that I'm actually need to work on a different one. Mm. So, um, yes, it does take place in a certain place and at a certain time. (laughs) Um, It takes place in the town of Crockett, California, um, in the 30s. My family um, moved to Crockett from Redlands, California, and Mexico to work at the c Sugar Refinery in Crockett, and um, it was a company town. Ninety-five percent of the people who lived in the town worked in the factory, and it's a um, a little bit of an eco horror, also magical realism look at um, the sugar industry and and the people who worked in it both in Hawaii and California and then also the sort of underground um, queer art scene that was happening and thriving in the 30s in San Francisco just right across the bay from Crockett. So it's historical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fascinating.
0: I love how you move uh, locations for each novel.
2: <laughs> yeah, back to kind of um, a place that I've never lived though or been so I'm going to have to be taking some trips to Crockett I'm time to look into in, writing some grants for some research because <laughs> I need to come hang out for a while, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds great. I can't wait to read it. So thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Michelle. Oh, thank you for having me so much. I hope you guys have a great day. We'll
1: be right back with today's book trend.
0: Today's book trend has to do with writers buying back their rights. This is not a new thing in and of itself. Writers have always been able to buy back their rights, but what feels different now is how writers today are exerting more control in the process. And I'm thinking of this trend because we've been talking about Kiese Lehmann in several shows over the past month, and I was struck by how he bought back the rights to how to slowly kill yourself and others in America. He said he paid 10 times what his original publisher paid him for those rights and then added essays to it and republished it with Scribner in 2020 on his own terms. And I kind of can't stop thinking about that.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. It's an interesting time, I think, because, you know, what we're seeing is people in book publishing actually listening, you know, maybe that's the trend. Um, I think historically, the line of thinking has always been, we know what's best authors, you know, so you just be a good author and don't rock the boat. Um, But for many, many reasons right now, that's just not flying. And the industry uh, has damaged its own reputation in a lot of ways. And so, it, you know, number one, it doesn't have the same leverage that it used to to be able to claim that it knows what's best anymore. Uh, and then to their credit, I mean, this is all, you know, the flip side, they're also listening right now. You know, they're paying attention. They know that they can't just um, ignore authors and what authors want. And especially around conversations happening with writers of color, you know, questions of fairness and pay and representation. And all of this is coming to a head over, you know, canceled books and sensitivities to missteps in the past. So the trend that I think we're really identifying almost is um, authors exerting more power in their publishing journeys.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I was thinking about a parallel story you shared with me recently, Brooke, about your working relationship with Mark Nepo and helping him to self-publish a previously published title. And this is a variation of the same trend, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mark started his own imprint called Freefall Books, and I have supported him to publish one single backlist book so far. Uh, That's a book that's called As Far As the Heart Can See, which had been declared out of print by his original publisher. Uh, Mark did have to buy back a few things, like the files and the artwork in his case, but he wasn't, like, KSA trying to wrest it from his publisher because he didn't like it anymore and wanted to change it. You know, in his case, the publisher was reverting those rights but that said, his choice to create free fall books uh, and his wherewithal to consider that his readers still want access to this book and to whatever future books will publish on his imprint uh, is absolutely all about taking back control of his inventory and his life's work.
0: Yeah, you know, this whole conversation is, oddly enough, making me think of Dolly Parton. And if you haven't listened <laughs> to, <laughs> if you haven't listened to the podcast Dolly Parton's America I recommend it and the reason I mentioned this is because in one of the final episodes Dolly's talking about her legacy and she's spending all this time recording tracks of her voice for other future artists to remix or use in whatever capacity they might want but her estate will own those tracks and it mm-hmm. was the entrepreneurialism of this that inspired me and I think too often creative artists haven't considered all the ways that they can exert more control over their legacy
1: Yeah, I mean, if anybody's going to model that for us, it's Dolly. And I also adored that podcast. I really learned a lot about her and her incredible impact on so many other songwriters. So yeah, more power to her, more power to these authors. You know, it's kind of like getting your house in order, taking the horse by the reins, whatever other maxims we (laughs) might want to throw out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, let's make a list. Uh, I once heard someone say that Dolly Parton is the one great unifier in this country she brings everybody together no one everyone likes dolly Mm -hmm. and i love her she's an amazing model of not only creativity but business sense and we have this long uh unfortunate heritage in the writing world of writers either choosing to be passive or kind of missing in action when it comes to the business side of things or they're infantilized and just kept out of the discussion so i'm all for authors seizing a seat at the table grabbing a hold of the reins, like you say, and being in more control of the work.
1: Yeah, here, here for sure. So on that note, everyone, uh, we'll be back with another episode and another book trend next week. Uh, let us know if you're liking the book trends. If you are hearing of book trends, we also need content. <laughs> let us know what's happening out in the book world. Well, we're actually tracking things pretty well, but we're having fun with this and, you know, love being in your queue. So we will be back with you next week.